Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on July 28, 2010, and to part two of the panel discussion, Arguing with Non-Skeptics, which took place at the Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism here in New York City. The panelists again were James Randi. That attracted all the cuckoos. DJ Grothy. No questions should be off-limit. No issues are taboo for the skeptic. George Robb. Not falling into the trap of thinking the person you're talking to is an idiot. And me. Here's our moderator, Julia Galef, co-host of Rationally Speaking, the podcast of the New York City Skeptics Group. Can we, can we talk a little bit about um, beliefs that are... Um, where people are clinging to them for especially emotional reasons, because I think that's one of the hardest things to get mm-hmm. past when yeah. we're arguing with people. Um, it really jumps out at you when, when you listen to sort of the anti-science or anti-skeptic um, camps that how much they they play on people's uh, emotions like like hope and and fear, mm-hmm. um, and that just it's just such a powerful force. Even if you are trying to think rationally, and especially if you're not, um, have you have you guys developed any ways of sort of getting getting through that wall? Well, I've said several times that Sylvia Brown and John Edward. Uh, have as their best customers and converts people who are grieving, people who have just lost someone dear to them, and they're looking around, they don't quite understand why this happened to them, and if they come under the influence of these so-called psychics and such, they are perfect fodder for those canons. They really are. They are, are going to collapse into belief very, very easily, and that's why they head for them. And th- that's the cruel part of this whole thing of speaking with the dead. Uh, it, it is a, a cruel farce, and it's something that, that gives me such a bad taste every time I see it or experience it or, or am referred to it. it it's really a, a nasty aspect of this whole thing, and it's one of the reasons for my existence, and I hope for the existence of many people sitting in this audience. Hmm. <laughs> I, think, I think you have to know when to dive into those really heavy emotional things. If you're dealing with someone who's lost a loved one, it might not be the best time to to start talking about the afterlife or things like that. Now, if they're spending thousands of dollars talking to a fraud, then it's almost your it's almost your duty to at least at least present the possibilities of what they're doing is not the best use of their money. But again, you're not going to be able to. It's a very, it's such a tenuous mm. position to, to be put into. I had a, 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 a listener of my show call in and said his neighbor uh, lost his wife and daughter. I think it was it was a horrible accident, and this guy now was going to. He was bringing people into his house, spending all kinds of money on on psychics, and they wanted to talk with the. And he said, "What do I do?" And I said, "There's only so much you can do. You know, yep. you, you you have to." realize that the weight of what has transpired is so massive. That it's, 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 it's such a delicate situation. But more important even that, than the money, George, is the emotional dependence. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Because yeah. The, the money is only one thing. Many people can afford that kind of money, and it, won't, it doesn't cost them anything emotionally. But if they get them emotionally and get them uh, locked into this belief in the supernatural right. and survival after death and such... That's the danger of the thing. And yet there's, there's sometimes when, when people can feel a certain sense of connection. I mean, there, there is some relief that people do feel sometimes thinking that there's, a, there's, a, there, there's something beyond. Yeah. And it would be very difficult for me to 
wag my finger yeah. and say yeah. there's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to be very you know? careful. So very it's selective. a balance. Uh, there's another kind of argument that I, I feel is true and yet tends to go over very poorly with people. Um, basically, all the ways that our brains play tricks on us. So this includes less less eerie phenomena too, like just selective memory when you remember the hits and forget the misses. Um, but I just I just find that people uh, tend to really um, bridle when you when you say something like that because what they hear is oh it's all in your head or you're imagining it um, and that seems both uh, insulting and also implausible to them. Do you do you have trouble making this argument or is there any way you sort of make it more? Convincing to people? Well, I would not use the expression "it's all in your head." <laughs> oh no, I'm just saying that. That's I think that's what they hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what they, that's the impression they get from what you've said. Right. But you've got to be very careful. You've got to be very politic, very, uh, very sensitive. Uh, it, that that covers it pretty well to what their needs are. You can't disappoint them. You can't fly in their face. You've got to be. You'd be amazed. I, though I look like the the curmudgeon of all time, I make Andy Rooney look like an amateur when it comes to that. <laughs> Not for the eyebrows, but um, <laughs> but certainly being curmudgeonly. But uh, believe me, I have sat with so many people, with families, entire families, sitting in the library at the James Randi Educational Foundation and have to discuss how do we how do we talk mom out of giving all the money to the spiritualist or to the healers or whatever. And uh, I don't really have a very good answer for them, mm. except... Be gentle, be kind, try to be understanding, and, and wait till the, the big impact of the loss of a loved one is essentially, well, maybe never over, but essentially over, or at least uh, on its downside of taking advantage of these people. Just be gentle and be kind and be understanding. Do a lot of handshaking and shoulder grasping and whatnot. That's important. You can't come out as the nasty curmudgeon. You really can't. In terms of the it's all in your head or uh, go, going back to that idea of what people witness and how they swear that they could, could you know, they felt it, they heard it, they saw it, they were there, you know, show a couple Richard Weissman videos. You know, the, yes. the, the dribbling gorilla that walks through the crowd. I'm sure most of you yes, have seen yes, this absolutely. thing, right, where it's Very people. True. There are people. Your job is to count how many times six or seven basketball players toss a ball to each other. Count the number of times the white shirts throw the ball back and forth. And you sit there and you count and you count and you count. And it's like, yeah, I'm going to get this. This is easy. I'm going to get this. And, and the video finishes. And then you go back and you rewind. And now they say, now just watch it without watching it without counting, and of course the same exact video you watch, and a gorilla walks through the scene and yeah. kind of waves and walks out. And you go, like. <laughs> and if you had, like they said earlier in one of the panels, you know, if you had been taken to court, did you see a gorilla walk through that scene? No, Your Honor, I swear I did not see a gorilla walk. And you would be right in your mind. But the trouble but, is, George, they don't believe that's the same video. I know that there's that too, right? Second time. Right, right. And, but and, and for good examples. reason. They yeah. just simply did not see the damn right. gorilla. But it does open up that possibility of, yes. here's what's happening right in front of you. What else is happening right in front of you mm. where you would swear that that thing happened or didn't happen? <clears throat> I, 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 now, go ahead, Betty. Uh, I, I was just going to uh, – we were talking about two different strategies right here because we're talking about two different sets of beliefs. So Randy was talking about the beliefs that hit you where you live and breathe. You know, you believe in ghosts because you have a deceased loved one and you saw your grandfather with whom you're very close downstairs in the chilly part of the basement, okay? And you're talking about maybe someone – uh, you know, maybe a less central belief, a right. less foundational belief that you can show a video or talk about cognitive distortions or mental biases or something. Uh, 
each strategy works for the different kinds of beliefs we're talking about. Um, when skeptics realize that almost every single thing we're skeptical about is not just a, a goofy, funny thing to, you know, uh, enjoy that people Part believe. Yeah, yeah. But that we're talking about the most basic and most fundamental beliefs that people have that make sense out of the universe for most people. Um, Psychics, we might say, well, that's, oh, come on, I, I, don't want, I don't want a fake psychic to harm people, and maybe that's why we're in it. But, you know, some people believe in psychics because of the implications of psychic powers. If psychic powers are real, that is incredibly comforting. J.B. Ryan, when he started out in his research, well, he was a naturalist at first at University of Chicago, and he thought about the implications of science and evolution, and he realized, my gosh, this means that when you're dead, you're dead, and I don't like that. And so he switched his whole research uh, trajectory into trying to prove that psychic powers exist. Why? Because if you could prove that minds can communicate with minds, then you prove mind-body dualism, and that suggests that people survive death. And that's where most believers are coming from, really central issues, not just trivial, goofy stuff you see on, uh, should I say, the science channel, one of the cable channels that's not really, you know, history channel's not really about history. It's about Bigfoot a lot, so, yeah. And Arthur Cronin Doyle and Bishop Pike and many other uh, persons of, of great intellect actually fell for this sort of thing. They lost... Uh, loved ones in the war, in, mm-hmm. in both those cases, as a matter mm-hmm. of fact, and they turned around on their heels right away and began to believe in woo-woo material and uh, were completely committed to it, mm-hmm. completely. Mm-hmm. Even Alfred Russell Wallace, yeah. exactly, right. yes. co-discoverer of evolutionary theory, That's right. fell for that. Yeah. yeah, Which also raises the issue that when you are put into a situation of great stress, um, it's, it's, it's your job to be vigilant and to, and to be okay with reality because it's very tempting often to have thoughts of oh well you know I'm unlucky well, how that, often, you know that kind of yeah, stuff yeah. how often do I get this comment one woman in the audience uh, <coughs> during one of, one of my, my talks after I finished the talk and I threw it open to questions and she stood up and she asked me a question and I gave her what I believed to, and the audience believed to be a very satisfactory and rational answer uh, for the thing, and uh, I thanked her, and she sat down, and then she immediately stood up again. She said, Mr. Randy, I think I know what your problem is. Well, I'm always interested in knowing that, too. You know? <laughs> and uh, so I said, uh, indeed, and uh, what would that be? She said, you're over-obsessed with reality. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. Think about that, over-obsessed with reality. And the audience laughed and applauded. She thought they were applauding for her comment. They were laughing at her and applauding for me. That's the way I, I interpreted it, at least. Over-obsessed, but you can't be over-obsessed with reality, in my estimation. Okay, so this is another section, uh, sector of people that um, I'm interested in, in your approach to. People who, who just, off the bat, deny the validity of, of logic or reason or evidence in, um, in reaching truth. Are they are they a lost cause or is there some other approach? Is um, it postmodernist academics is that who you're talking? About? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. True. Very true. You, you make them watch uh, Tim Minchin's Storm. Yeah. Well said. Well said. You know, just 
just to get a little bit of a just a little bit of a thing there. Um, maybe is there is there some way to um, to show them that they use logic and reason in other arenas and they're not actually. Um, Oh, people can be divided like that. They can be very rational on one point of view. And I know scientists who follow the scientific method, and yet they will come up with the craziest beliefs about some other things, and not even because a PhD wrote it up in a scientific paper, but just because they sort of like the idea. And, and they'll look at you and they'll say, well, that's true, it hasn't been proven, but I, I really want it to be that way. Duh! And this is a scientific mind... I, I find that hard to believe, but you get it all the time from scientists. Mm-hmm. So uh, on that point, uh, if I'm engaging someone who is emphatic that, uh, you know, you're too logical, you're, you know, you're, you're being too reasonable, my gosh, you're too in your head, or whatever that challenge, that charge is, um, I think a strategy to engage that person, or a radical skeptic of all knowledge, a postmodernist, say, who thinks maybe that science is just a mythic narrative like any other view. Um, I instead like to um, talk about it in terms of skepticism being like intellectual self-defense. In other words, to engage self-interest, that it's not about me telling her that she's wrong, but instead about uh, kind of helping or trying to persuade her that it's in her own best interest to kick the tires of the car before she buys it, to look under the hood, that it's an inte- a kind of intellectual self-defense. You know, when talking to young children about this, about science and reason and critical thinking, a way to frame it, that uh, a word picture that they really get is that it's intellectual karate. It's a way to kind of keep someone else from pulling one over on you. And so this consumer protection kind of way to talk about it, I think is a, it, it uh, makes sense to even the radical skeptic of all knowledge. Because if someone says, well, uh, truth, that's just a compliment that you give to ideas that work for you. you know, then you say, well, it's not in your best interest really to believe that if you think that the, the truth, the brute facticity uh, of gravity, that when you jump off the building, you know, you'll go splat, you know, that's a self-interest argument, that it's in her best interest uh, to maybe look into these claims. The truth of the brake pedal. Yeah. yeah I, it's a very similar thing. I always ask people, well, how do you have the courage to get on an airplane? If you yeah. think, you know, just in, in literary theory, if you think that the text can be <laughs> deconstructed of the manual of the airplane, how do, how do you have the courage to get on there? Or if you think that what really keeps it up is the, the group belief that the thing is going to fly. Aren't, wouldn't you like to really poll all the other members of the flight before you get on there to make sure that their belief is really good? And yet Isaac Asimov was deadly afraid of flying, and he admitted to me and to so many other people, oh, I know that the, the chances of an accident happening are much less than being out in a bus or on a car on the highway or on a train. He said, but... I know that the plane I get on is going to fall down. And, and this is Isaac Asimov now, mind you. Wow. But he believed that, and he would not fly. That's all there is. That's one of those, uh, when Neil deGrasse Tyson gave the keynote at TAM 6, I think it was, mm-hmm. he talked about percentages of, of scientists, people with PhDs, uh, leading, leading scientists in their field in terms of how the belief in religious belief and, 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 and woo belief lowers sort of the more prestigious you get. 
uh, in terms of your, your, your place in, in, in science. And yet there's still 3 to 4% that believe in, in questionable belief that there might be. Um, and he said, that's the number you should be interested in, in looking at and studying. I'm, I'm, I'm wording this very poorly, but he said, that number, that 3%, that's the number you should be. Why? What's going on there? And that was a very fascinating kind of thing to think of. This is a obviously rational person who is very intelligent, and yet um, they might have some kind of belief system that is impervious to the system of rational thinking. Why is that? It sort of it sort of addresses that same same mm-hmm. idea. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask about the label skeptic. Whether you think that helps or hurts <coughs> us um, in in. Uh, trying to persuade people, I can I can see it potentially helping us just in that um, being public about labeling ourselves skeptics makes people come to us to ask us about things, and and so then it seems less like we're actually attacking someone else's viewpoint or just responding. Um, but then of course people might think, uh, well, you know, they might be more inclined to discount what we say because you know, well, he's a skeptic. Of course he's going to say that. Uh, what, what do you think? Uh, y- you don't get to pick your nickname. I've said this before. You don't. Anyone who picks their own nickname, you don't want to have anything to do with. So call me Ace. No, I'm not going to call you Ace. <laughs> so we are skeptics. My personal thing is we are skeptics. Embrace it the same way that other other uh, sections of society had names called, and they embraced those names, whether it was queer or or, or whatever it is. You sort of say, yeah, that's that's what I am. I'm a skeptic. Um, I, I think that's <laughs> we don't get to pick just go with it I, th- that's sort of my approach great okay I, I think we have, we have time oh, for geez, a few sorry I didn't mean to be the last, the last thing sorry <laughs> no, not yeah. sorry? well on that point I was looking I know you have an opinion about the term skeptic um, well then I'll say I, I don't think it was a nickname given us but I really enjoy the word skeptic much more than most any other term that can describe our mind view because it's comprehensive and properly understood. I mean, if you have to spend 10 minutes to explain to someone what it means, then, you know, that's a downside. (laughs) But skeptic means something, uh, and it's a noble tradition in the history of the Western, in in Western intellectual thought, skepticism means something. And we don't, you don't need to run if you're not being chased. And most people don't say skepticism means bad. Now, they do say atheism means bad, right? Um... I don't think skepticism is in the, in the same category. And always specify skeptic does not mean cynic. Well, that concludes the Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism panel on arguing with non-skeptics. Thanks to Michael Feldman of the New York City Skeptics Group for supplying the audio from the event. We'll be back next week with a look at the August issue of Scientific American. Till then, get your science news at www.scientificamerican.com, where you can check out the slideshow on optical illusions and the Ask the Experts feature on how exactly does a heat wave affect the human body. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.